0: for part two of the six-part National Park series. My name is Zach Zhu and I'll be your National Park tour guide for today. But before we dive into part two, do you guys hear how awesome this is? I decided to make the investment to not sound like I'm speaking out of a toaster, and now everything sounds funk-tastic and incredible, and I love it in particular because it brings better content for you guys. And with that being said, Let's go over a recap of part one from 1851 to 1890, the battle for our national parks, the scripture of nature. We were introduced to Yosemite, the incredible natural beauty from Northern California that would be a catalyst for our national park system. Because of the privatization of many natural wonders during that time, such as Niagara Falls, there was a greater pressure and urgency for protection, which led to good old Honest Abe signing a law to preserve Yosemite forever in 1864, even though he never saw it before. Even so, there were people that were against this law, such as James Mason Hutchings, who quickly moved to exploit the valley by buying one of the valley's two hotels and started charging people to see Yosemite. But in every darkness, there is always a glimmer of light. This glimmer of light happened to be good old Scotsman and natural born scientist Mr. John Muir, the ultimate protector of land who was hired by James Mason Hutchings to run his sawmill. Of course, James Mason Hutchings was still encapsulated in legal battles over the beautiful land and ultimately was evicted from his hotel and banished from the valley after he lost a trifling legal battle that left him with nothing. We then moved on to Yellowstone, where rumors of boiling mud and spouting water and steam came out of the ground, led by Henry D. Washburn and Nathaniel Langford, a businessman who was scouting the area for a railroad company that he was on the payroll for. During the expedition, we also lost track of Truman C. Everts, the dude who went missing for 37 days, and somehow survived miraculously. After returning, in the summer of 1871, Ferdinand Hayden, would be a driving force in documenting Yellowstone, which in turn led to President Ulysses S. Grant signing a bill that would create Yellowstone National Park. The first national park in the history of the world. With that came many challenges in trying to maintain order for Yellowstone, as many thought it was too big. Yellowstone was in danger, but thanks to General Sheridan's Troop M of the United States Cavalry, Yellowstone would be safe for the next 30 years. And with that... We continue with the story of John Weir, picking up after his efforts of making Yosemite a national park in 1890. Let's move on to part 2. But before that, we have to do the Zoopedia Fun Fact of the Week! Thought I forgot, didn't ya? Did you know the average person walks the equivalent of 5 times around the world in their lifetime? Assume the average person lives until they're 80. They will walk about 110,000 miles in their lifetime. The circumference of the equator is 24,900 miles. It's a good thing I've already walked a hundred thousand of those 110,000 miles in Home Depot when I was a kid and being forced to go with my dad. And with that being said, let's jump into the battle for our national parks part two, The Last Refuge. Let's take a journey. Introduction. The disappearing bounty. Towards the end of the 19th century, there was a growing awareness that the nation's unrelenting rush to conquer and tame the land had come at a terrible cost. Forests had been devastated, an entire species of animals had been ravaged, all in the name of progress. And this was in the 19th century. Welcome to the 21st century. The naturalist John Muir, eloquently expressed his concern when he spoke of how the great wilds of our country, once held to be boundless and inexhaustible, are being rapidly invaded and overrun, and everything destructible in them is being destroyed. For the handful of Americans concerned for the future of the nation's natural places, the national parks represented a glimmer of hope that at least some pristine places could be saved before it was too late. Among those concerned few was a young politician, Theodore Roosevelt, who would later become president and whose lasting legacy would be rescuing large portions of America's natural landscape from destruction. Side note, Teddy Roosevelt is my favorite president of all time for this specific reason. Before his presidency was over, Roosevelt would create five new national parks, 51 federal bird sanctuaries, four national game refuges, 18 national monuments, and more than a hundred million acres worth of national forests. And a partridge in a pear tree. I'm sorry, I had to. The need to protect the parks from ourselves. Although the four national parks that had been established by 1890 were under the protection of the army, they were by no means out of danger. Park wildlife was routinely killed, livestock overgrazed park meadows, Ancient forests were still under threat. Tourists carved their names on rocks and trees. In 1889, the well-known English author Rudyard Kipling described his visit to Yellowstone in dispatches that he wrote for overseas newspapers. In those early years, tourists would pour laundry soap into the mouths of geysers in a bid to hasten eruptions. People were insane, and they still are. And the most famous geyser, Old Faithful, women used their hairpins to scratch their names in the bottoms of pools. No clear rules had been set out as to what constituted acceptable behavior in the parks. A Refuge Without Laws While Congress had created the national parks, it had not made any provision for an authority to oversee them. The cavalry had been sent into Yellowstone as a temporary measure, but by the 1890s the arrangement had become permanent. It was a mammoth task for the army to patrol the park's two million acres on horseback. While they did their best to stop poachers and vandals, the soldiers had no recourse to punish offenders. No laws had been defined, and so the wrongdoers were only issued warnings, or in severe cases, expelled from the park. Protecting the park was dangerous work. In the frigid winter season, cavalrymen on skis patrolled for poachers. Conditions were often treacherous. Soldiers died in avalanches and snowstorms, Were killed by poachers. This doesn't sound like that great of a gig to me. Getting killed for beaver pelts? Not very cash money, if you ask me. The cavalry was also in charge of patrolling the nation's three other national parks, General Grant, Sequoia, and Yosemite. Under Captain Charles Young, the first black man to be put in charge of the national park, Soldiers built the first trail to Mount Whitney and erected protective fences around the big trees in Sequoia National Park. Like their counterparts in Yellowstone, the troops in California operated without clear legal authority and had no power to arrest and prosecute criminals. John Muir was extremely grateful for the Army's protective presence. However, to further ensure the Yosemite Valley's protection, Muir wanted it to be transferred from state control to the federal government and made a part of a larger Yosemite National Park. In 1892, Muir and a handful of prominent Californians formed the Sierra Club to help promote Yosemite's protection. George Bird Grinnell and the Audubon Society. The aptly named ornithologist George Bird Grinnell. Get it? Because the study of ornithology is the study of birds? George Bird Grinnell. Pretty great name. Bird Grinnell was the editor and owner of Forest and Stream magazine and was keenly aware that the nation's bountiful natural resources were not inexhaustible. He could remember seeing immense flocks of passenger pigeons, so numerous that they darkened the sky. While traveling, he had encountered a buffalo herd so vast that his train was forced to stop for three hours while the beasts crossed the tracks. Now, So much wildlife was rapidly disappearing. Passenger pigeons were on the verge of extinction. The country's last remaining herd of wild buffalo, estimated at only a few hundred animals, was in Yellowstone. Passenger pigeons are now extinct, just letting you know. Grinnell used the pages of Forest and Stream to try to point Americans in a new direction. He wasn't against hunting. In fact, he loved to hunt, but he feared that without wise management, there would be nothing left for hunters to shoot. He created the Audubon Society, aimed at stopping the heedless killings of wild birds. Together, with rising political star Theodore Roosevelt, he battled to protect Yellowstone. But something was missing. There were still no laws in place to give Yellowstone's caretakers clear authority to protect its wildlife. A poacher to the rescue. A poacher named Edgar Howell would soon unwittingly come to their aid when on March 13th, 1894, he was caught skinning the carcasses of buffaloes he had shot in Yellowstone. Howell bragged to a reporter that the worst punishment he could receive for his crime was expulsion from the park and the loss of equipment worth $26.75. Wild. That's like four Chipotle bulls. Grinnell ran the story in Forest and Stream and succeeded in creating a public outcry. On May 7th, 1894, President Grover Cleveland signed a bill into law authorizing regulations that would finally protect the park, its geysers, and its wildlife. It was known as the Act to Protect the Birds and Animals in Yellowstone National Park. Super creative, right? Muir's Preservation versus Pinchot's Conservation In 1891, Congress had enacted the Forest Reserve Act, empowering Presidents of the United States to set aside parcels of public land as National Forest Reserves. John Muir and Gifford Pinchot both key figures associated with the origins of the American conservation movement, would differ strongly on what should be permitted in these forest preserves. Pinchot was a Yale graduate who had studied forestry overseas and was the first American to declare himself a professional forester. What a fascinating title. I wonder if that's the same feeling as declaring yourself to be a professional podcaster. Haha. The two men met in 1896 and initially enjoyed each other's company agreeing that something had to be done to save America's forests from destruction. Muir was a preservationist. He considered forests sacred and wanted them treated as parks, with logging, grazing, and hunting prohibited. Pinchot was a conservationist. He believed the best way to protect the forests was to manage their use, not leave them alone. His favorite saying was, the greatest good for the greatest number. Pencho's utilitarian conservation found favor with both Congress and the administration of President Grover Cleveland. Pencho was appointed the nation's chief forester, and the National Forest became part of the Department of Agriculture to be used and managed like a crop, not preserved like a temple. Muir, who had already witnessed so much devastation by lumber syndicates, doubted that the new National Forest Service could adequately protect the forests. He and his supporters won a small victory in 1899 when they succeeded in turning Mount Rainier in Washington State from a national forest to a national park. Mount Rainier is ridiculously gorgeous. Highly recommend making a trip up here. The call for a featherless hat. By 1900, feathers were in fashion, and no woman's hat, it seemed, was complete without an array of plumes. Some hats even included entire stuffed birds if only supreme existed back in the early 1900s. The long, white plumes of egrets had become more valuable than gold. To satisfy the demands of this latest fashion trend, more than 5 million birds a year were being slaughtered. Nearly 95% of Florida's shorebirds had been killed by plume hunters. Ah, good old Florida, always doing Florida things. The Audubon Society tried unsuccessfully to persuade women not to buy hats with feathers, while the powerful millinery industry used its influence in Congress to defeat a series of national laws aimed at stopping the slaughter of birds. An unlikely champion stepped forward in the form of Congressman John F. Lacey. Despite being a part of a group of die-hard conservatives, when it came to defending wildlife, Lacey was one of the most progressive politicians of his day. Strangely ironic. After years of ceaseless effort, he won passage of the Lacey Bird and Game Act of 1900. The bill made it a federal crime to transport birds killed in violation of any state law, and soon government agents were confiscating huge shipments of bird skins and feathers. But in the lawless Everglades, the Lacey Act did not put an end to plume hunting. Five years after the bill's passage, a game warden was murdered by poachers. Another was gunned down three years later. The wildlife in southern Florida, it seemed, would never be safe unless the Everglades itself was set aside as a national park. Growing up in Florida almost all my life, this does not surprise me. Theodore Roosevelt, champion of the conservation movement. As America moved into a new century, a new word, conservation, had crept into the nation's vocabulary. A new president, Theodore Roosevelt, who would become conservation's greatest advocate and would turn the word into a movement. Teddy Roosevelt. What a guy. Not since Thomas Jefferson had there been an American president with greater interest in the natural world. Much of Roosevelt's childhood was devoted to studying animals and learning taxidermy. At age 12, he donated some of his specimens to the American Museum of Natural History. At age 12, I pretty much learned how to make a grilled cheese. In 1883, after hearing reports about the rapidly disappearing herds of buffalo, 24-year-old Roosevelt headed west, afraid that the animals might become extinct before he had a chance to shoot one. He went home not only with a hunting trophy, but with an understanding of what was at stake in the debate about the future of nature in America. 20 years later, in 1903, he once again boarded a train headed west, arriving just outside of Yellowstone National Park. He was no longer a scrawny and inexperienced Easterner, but a national hero and the youngest president in the United States history. Subtle flex. For the benefit and enjoyment of the people. President Theodore Roosevelt's visit to Yellowstone in 1903 was a break from an eight-week national tour during which he delivered over 200 speeches. Yearning to be alone in nature, he immediately set off on horseback with the Army's acting park superintendent leaving the rest of the presidential entourage behind. Roosevelt delighted in seeing so many animals, especially since the increase in game animals could be attributed to the wildlife protection bill that he, along with George Bird Grinnell and John F. Lacey, had worked so hard to pass. The president was a hunter, and he was itching to shoot something. Since the park managers were killing predators, he hoped a mountain lion would be fair game until his advisors convinced him that killing any animal in a national park would not be good politics. Probably a good idea. At the end of Roosevelt's two-week visit, he spoke at the construction site of a new arch at the north entrance of Yellowstone. In his speech, Roosevelt reminded people of the essential democratic principle embodied by the parks. They were created for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. Lee's words were later carved into the arch's mantle as a reminder of why the park was there and for whom. The next stop on Roosevelt's whirlwind tour was a brief visit to the Grand Canyon, where he was overwhelmed by the spectacular vista from the South Rim. The president urged the people of Arizona to keep this great wonder of nature as it now is. They did a great job, because I hiked the Grand Canyon this summer, and that shiz was ridiculously insane. The Ancient Ruins of Mesa Verde In 1889, rancher Richard Witherell and his four brothers stumbled across ancient ruins in the cliffs of Mesa Verde in Colorado. They excavated the site, gathering thousands of artifacts which they sold to the museums. The brothers sought to protect the ruins by making Mesa Verde a national park, but the government turned down their request. When authorities tried to stop a Swedish archaeologist from sending a huge shipment of Mesa Verde artifacts abroad, they discovered that they were powerless to do so. There was no law in existence protecting antiquities. And that's how IKEA was invented. No need to fact check that. Richard Wetherill and the discovery of Chaco Canyon. Without any law protecting them, the ruins that the Wetherill brothers had first discovered at Mesa Verde were subjected to looting and vandalism. Without any law protecting them, the ruins that the Wetherill brothers had first discovered at Mesa Verde were subjected to looting and vandalism archaeologists were horrified by it all, fearing that a record of an ancient civilization would be lost forever. In their eyes, the Weatherall brothers were as much to blame as anyone else. This was a particularly sore spot for Richard Weatherall, who, despite his lack of a formal education, wanted to be taken seriously as an archaeologist. He had left Mesa Verde to search for other ruins in the southwest. Finally, in New Mexico, he came to a place called Chaco Canyon, where he began to study another set of ruins left behind by the ancient Puebloans. Although Weatherall tried to carry on his work as scientifically as possible, he was still dismissed as a pot hunter, and professional archaeologists urged the government to do something to stop him. Weatherall offered to give up any claim to the Chaco Canyon ruins if only the federal government would do something to protect them. Poor guy, just trying to explore his passions. The Extraordinary Power of the Antiquities Act On June 29, 1906, President Roosevelt signed the law creating Mesa Verde National Park. It was the first park created specifically to celebrate a prehistoric culture and its people and marked a broadening of the park idea. But while Mesa Verde had been saved, there was no law protecting any of the other ancient ruins scattered throughout the southwest. Growing anger over Richard Wetherill's excavations at Chaco Canyon would set in motion events that would change the course of park history. With the help of John F. Lacey, the Act for the Preservation of American Antiquities was passed. Now, any unauthorized disturbance of a prehistoric ruin was a federal crime. The Antiquities Act also gave the president an extraordinary power, the exclusive authority without any congressional approval to preserve places that would be called national monuments. What an amazing power. A president's delight. Theodore Roosevelt wasted no time in putting his new powers to use. Devil's Tower in eastern Wyoming became the first of many national parks, and on March 11, 1907, the president did exactly what Richard Wetherill had wanted, by creating Chaco Canyon National Monument. Roosevelt would also use the Antiquities Act to protect Muir Woods, an endangered grove of giant coastal redwoods named after his friend John Muir. He would use it again at Muir's request to save an endangered fossilized forest In Arizona that dated back 200 million years. With a stroke of his pen, he created the Petrified Forest National Monument. There was one more national park that President Roosevelt wanted to add to his list, the Grand Canyon, which was under threat by developers, miners, and ranchers. But local opposition was so strong that not even he could persuade Congress to act. Roosevelt realized that the wording of the Antiquities Act could be used to his advantage. He created a furrer when on January 11th, in 1908, he stretched the act to its limit by declaring the Grand Canyon to be an object of unusual scientific interest and a national monument. Gotta love them loopholes. The death of a valley and its protector. In John Muir's eyes, the Hetch Hetchy Valley of Yosemite National Park was one of nature's rarest and most precious mountain temples. When the city of San Francisco, eager to create a better water supply, set its sights on a building, a dam in the Hetch Hetchy Valley, Muir embarked on a long and bitter fight to save his beloved temple. Initially, Muir's view prevailed, but when, in 1906, an earthquake and ensuing fires reduced San Francisco to ash and rubble, politicians falsely claimed that a water supply from a reservoir at Hetch Hetchy could have prevented the destruction. An old classic deflection of blame. To John Muir, allowing a dam in a national park was sacrilege and set a dangerous precedent. To Gifford Pinchot, Muir's old adversary who had stepped forward to campaign on the city's behalf, it would be the greatest good for the greatest number. Despite Muir's appeal to President Roosevelt to save Hetch Hetchy, Pinchot's view eventually prevailed. In 1913, President Woodrow Wilson signed the bill approving the dam into law. Muir, now 75, was devastated. In December of 1914, he came down with pneumonia, and on Christmas Eve, the wilderness prophet died. Four years after Muir's death, work on the dam began. Thankfully, he lived as long as he did. Rest in peace to the Savior and the soul of the national parks. Muir may have lost the fight but had struck a chord in many Americans who rightly wondered if any of the national parks were truly safe. A proposal that Muir had supported began gaining greater ground to create an agency within the federal government whose sole job would be to protect the national parks to make sure they endured for countless generations. What's going to happen next? And with that being tied up for this episode, thank you guys so much for listening. Remember, if you have any great ideas, please send them my way at zoopediapodcast at gmail.com. And make sure to stay tuned for part three coming out soon. Hope all of you guys enjoyed learning more about the foundational aspects of the national parks. And I hope all of you have a fantastic rest of your day. Cheers.